when I show up as a Calvinist, people expect the sort of sinners in the hands of an angry God thing for me. And that's really not at all where this tradition lands. This tradition is insistent upon sin as self-destructive. You know how sometimes you find a book or an author at just the right time in your life. And the words, the ideas, the themes, they soak in deep and it becomes a part of your story. In a sense, that's what it was like for me in discovering the work of Rebecca Kaneindike de Young. She's written two books and we're using one of them this month in the book club. It's titled Glittering Vices, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins and Their Remedies. Now this might sound like a bit of a confession to reveal that a book on the seven deadly sins altered my life, but it doesn't really feel like one, in part because I had such a misunderstanding of the seven, in part because Rebecca's treatment of this historic help was so winsome. It seems a rare gift to blend academic scholarship with a pastoral heart, all while giving you the sense that the author is a friend journeying with you. Rebecca does such, all with a spiritual formation lens. And so now you might understand my delight when I discovered we were using her book in the Renovare Book Club. Of course, this month we're working with the spiritual discipline of confession. And you'll hear that wonderfully freeing posture of turning away from thoughts, ideas, and behaviors that curve us inward. Well, it's all in here. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Pleasure to be with you. I'm so glad to be with you. Um, I have a story. Can I start with a story? Sure. Yes. Um, my, my dad actually introduced me to your, uh, your book, Vainglory, a few years back. And I took note for two reasons. One, because I was wondering if he was making a subtle, um, you know, <laughs> hey, Nate, <laughs> maybe you should work on um, But two, uh, he never recommends modern. I mean, I can probably count on one hand the modern books he's recommended to me. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of made me perk up. When I got talking to him, I realized he wasn't necessarily trying to, um, you know, point out something I needed. It wasn't a self-examination cue for you? <laughs> no, nah, not so much. I mean, it, it right. was certainly very helpful, but I realized he learned a tremendous amount and it was very <laughs> impactful for him. Um, so wonderful, wonderful book. And then that yeah. led me to your first book, Glittering Vices. And mm -hmm. I think the subtitle really helps with it. A new look at the seven deadly sins. And this is the part I like. And their remedies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about, you wrote a book on the seven deadly sins. Who does that? Um, a Calvinist? <laughs> That's go. always my joke. If I show up somewhere and I say, you know, I'm this dour Calvinist and I'm going to obsess about sin with you for an hour. Let's mm -hmm. go. People, um, you know, they gulp and squirm and think that I'm going to play the the blame and shame game, a guilt yep. trip. And the first thing I want to say is that it's not how I got into it. That's not my vibe. 
um, I'm not interested in, in that side of the Calvinist tradition at all. Um, I'm interested in um, John Calvin, the theologian of the Holy Spirit side, the mm-hmm. sanctification side of the tradition. And um, I didn't, I got there through this book, um, but it, I wasn't there when I wrote it. Really? So, yeah, no, I was writing it as a philosopher and I was still still stumbling across things. So funny story. I begin the book with a, a story about pusillanimity in grad school, um, which is this vice that I've discovered in Thomas Aquinas. And I always say every time I read Thomas Aquinas, I discover another vice I didn't know I had. So if you had that experience <laughs> reading the book, know that you're in uh, familiar territory um, with the author. <laughs> the, um, the story that I they open with is that I discovered this, this vice called pusillanimity, which keep say it a little bit slower. Pusillanimity. It's just so not a the, word we usually use. Yes. You know, if you transliterate it from the Latin, it's small soul. Hmm. So the idea is you're, you're shrinking back in fear mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. all that God is calling you to do and be. And typically that fear is rooted in your self-reliance. Mm. You look at your own abilities and your own achievements and you think, eh, this is not going to be good enough. This is not going to end well. Um, as soon as they find out where the end of my abilities are, out the back door I go, crawling mm. out in shame. And everyone has this experience, either going to college, going to grad school, starting a new job, even in a new friendship or a new um, community. You might feel like, eh, do I, can I really make it here? Are these people really going to take me in and think I'm good enough? Mm-hmm. So it's that feeling, very familiar. Um, and, you know, honestly, there were a few other things going on in my life at that time that, that made grad school hard for me. But I think that was still a personal issue that I had. And the, my, small, the feeling like small yeah. soul, like I'm an imposter, faker. Yeah. You know, that kind yeah. Of. Imposter syndrome is the psychologist's word for hmm. this. Okay. Um, and what was so interesting is that in Aquinas, I found not only the name, for the thing that I had sort of been inchoately struggling with, like I knew I was struggling, but didn't sort of have a name to capture what the problem was. So when I read this passage in Aquinas, it was like, oh my goodness, I can't, that's me. That's yep. me. Mm-hmm. So I had this epiphany moment. Uh, and, and the great thing was I also had a biblical story of someone who struggled with pusillanimity and it's Moses mm. at the burning bush. And you think, no, no, Moses, he's the great leader of Israel, Red Sea, all the stuff. And you're like, well, look at where he started. He started at the burning bush, stammering. I mean, it's a it's a chapter full of excuses. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. I send somebody else. I stutter. I can't. I don't feel qualified. And God finally gets mad at him and says, look, quit resisting me. If I call you, I'm going to equip you. Mm-hmm. Is this about you and your ability or is this about my grace and power? Whose kingdom are you living in here? Mm. Um, get with my program. And so for me, it was this heartening story of, well, God wasn't obviously done with Moses at the burning bush. Um, but at the same time, it was also the tradition gave me a way forward. Okay. And that was Sabbath keeping. Because if you're fearful that you won't be good enough and you're a hyper overachiever, what do you do? You work and work and work and work and work and work and work trying to be good enough. And Sabbath keeping was about laying that down. Mm-hmm. Like one day a week, you're going to remember that I'm God. 
I'm in charge. I will give you everything that you need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it doesn't depend on your achievement and your effort. So you don't have to be afraid of failing. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was a calling story. So it's very closely linked to my own sense of vocation mm -hmm. in philosophy and teaching and all the rest of it. So that was my way in. What I discovered is that pusillanimity is an offspring vice, an offshoot of this deeper problem, which is called sloth. Mm -hmm. And I was teaching a seminar on Aquinas once I got my degree and I was teaching through the material that I had learned in grad school. And I was supposed to give this um, lecture on sloth the next day to these really smart um, philosophy students in my seminar. And I realized I had no idea what Aquinas was talking about. No idea. <laughs> um, so rather than lapse into pusillanimity again and be afraid that I wasn't going to be able to deliver that lecture, what I did is I dug into Aquinas's sources and guess, guess what I found? I found the desert fathers and mothers yeah. and um, they were the ones who illuminated what sloth was for me. And I thought, Whoa, this is, this is a completely new world. Mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. talking about spiritual formation and sanctification and how to grow in Christ-like character um, in the fiery furnace mm -hmm, on the desert, mm -hmm, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and so my journey was personal. It was through my ability to teach these things. But, but I'll be honest with you. I, I started out as a philosopher in, in this journey, sort of trying to analyze and understand mm -hmm. Philosophy begins um, with Socrates, who took the word of the oracle at Delphi, who said, know thyself. Mm -hmm. It's all about self-examination. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the parallels um, to the spiritual journey there. But it was philosophical self-examination. How, how do these vices actually work? How do we untangle them from each other conceptually? So it's this great intellectual project for me. Um, and as I taught it to my students, their feedback was, this is the most practical thing we've ever been taught in college. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute, this was a really interesting intellectual exercise that helped me, obviously, with self-examination. But I had no idea how captivating it would be for other people, that it would illuminate things in their lives the way pusillanimity, naming that vice, had illuminated things mm -hmm. in my life. And so it... I found my students having these epiphany moments and then they would ask me, well, now that I have a name for it, now what do I do? Right. Right. And I didn't have an answer to that question either. So that led me down the path to, okay, what does formation look like? Um, and that's actually the point at which I discovered Renovari. So mm. there's an interesting, um, you know, set of dots to connect. There. The seven deadly sins led you to Renovari. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. God can work with anything. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that caught me, and you're, you're hinting to it, is that our perception of what exactly they are and what they're about is so distorted. And yeah. I mean, this kind of cultural perception that it's, mm -hmm. you know, these wonderful things that we all want to, to, to do it, it is just wrong. Could you give just a basic kind of explanation about this idea of, you know, kind of good things gone bad, yeah. good desires gone bad. The, I think I'm taking my cue from St. Augustine, who describes everything that goes wrong in our lives in terms of disordered love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not that the things you love 
aren't good. Many of them are good. They're created things that are gifts from God. And what you've done is you've take, taken those gifts and forgotten the giver and made your whole life revolve around pursuit of the gift on your own power. Mm-hmm. So you've made that gift the end rather than using that gift to bring you into relationship with the giver, which is God. And then you've decided that your acquisition of the gift is all up to you, your time, your power, your plans, your agenda. You're not receiving it as a gift. Mm-hmm. So there's a fundamental distortion of what, what that good thing is. Mm-hmm. It's not, re- it's not recognized or received as a gift anymore. It's become an idol, which mm-hmm. is again, Augustine's term. So I often tell people the seven deadly sins aren't really seven or deadly or sins. That's kind of why <laughs> there's eight or nine. Think of it more like a top 10 list. Um, deadly is a later medieval category. You really should go with capital, which means it's a source sin. Because mm-hmm. they're not the worst things we can no, do. No, certainly not. They're not the worst things. I mean, I can name 10 things that are much, much worse than gluttony. Mm-hmm. Um, and more damaging to others and all the rest of it. But the picture here, and this is why the tradition uses the term vice, too, is it's a habit you get caught up in. So what I love to tell my students is that the pressing moral question in this context isn't, am I permitted to do this thing? Is it the right thing to do? The pressing moral question is, if I practice this and pursue this regularly for the next 10 years, what kind of person would I become? Mm -hmm. What kind of character would I develop? Mm -hmm. And that takes little things and turns them into big things. And I think it takes all these little mundane, thoughtless choices we make and signals that without intentionality and strategy and deliberate attention to formation, which comes through self-examination, among other things, um, and then spiritual exercises, like the spiritual disciplines. Without that dynamic, you're going to, you're just going to end up off track Mm -hmm. uh, following ruts that are deeply Mm -hmm. Mm self-destructive. When I show up as a Calvinist, people expect the sort of sinners in the hands of an angry God. (laughs) And that's really not at all where this tradition lands, this tradition is insistent upon sin as self-destructive. Yep. It, you don't need anybody to punish you because you are destroying yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Proverbs and the wisdom literature, Psalm 1, the beginning of the book of Proverbs, are all over that picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's the way of life and the way of death. And the way of life is led by wisdom and the fear of the Lord and the way of death is led by taking things into your own hands and pride, which turns into folly. And everybody knows that the way of death isn't the way of death because God has to intervene and do something to punish you. It's because you're choosing to walk away from him. And that's to walk away from abundant life. There's a natural, natural consequence. Mm -hmm. And so part of the dynamic that's so fascinating for me and for my students is do even just a smidgen of self-examination and all of a sudden you're hit in the face with this recognition of just how self-destructive some of this stuff Mm -hmm. is and how caught up in it you are Mm -hmm. without even having thought about it. Right. But I mean, the piece that was helpful for me too were one, these are, it's a kind of slippery slope. These good things gone bad. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that caught me is the this really is about grace and freedom. And what I found in reading it is this strong desire to not be curved inward. That mm-hmm. um, the idea of these things are not appealing at all, uh, not, you know, as opposed to um, kind of a cultural desire of, oh, I want to engage in these uh, sins. They're quite painful and destructive in their own Well, they, they glitter, hence the title. <laughs> yes. Um, they're, they are bright and shiny um, on the surface, but what people find is that once they're caught up in them, they're they're turning into their worst self and they need freedom Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's some self-inflicted misery there and and part of what i want to say about the whole business is we are all in this mess together part of what bothered me about the seven deadly sins literature that i read was either the literature trivialized the sins and act like no big deal they're just kind of funny let's make some spoof ads about these things and um, we don't even take sin seriously. That's some old, crusty, archaic religious category, which ha ha ha, we've all left behind now. So it didn't take sin seriously. But then the, the Christian tradition tended to either be clueless about its own history um, and retrieving the sins, didn't even have it on the radar screen, or they were all moralistic about it. Mm. So if you catch anything like a preach down my nose at you, self-righteous tone in my work, rip that page out and burn it because I want nothing to do with that tone at all. Um, it's I, not in there. It's oh, no thank you. It's not even close. I was, as I was writing the book, I kept thinking, oh, no, the more I find out, the more I've excavated my own heart and found more mess. So know that. A, we're all in it together, but B, the picture of formation, especially um, from the the desert tradition, is um, diagnosis by the Mm -hmm. physician of souls because he wants to heal you. (laughs) The whole point of getting that hard word and recognizing that there's a mess within is to go to somebody who can help and to be healed. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what was so fascinating to me when I started my own sort of Sabbath keeping practice was both how painful that procedure, quote unquote, was, but also how life-giving it mm. was. There was kind of this both and dynamic to it. It was both stripping away the old, but also giving life in ways that I hadn't even imagined. And I I just want to honor both of those sides of, of the practice of the disciplines, because that's the remedy, is to put your health in the hands of the great physician and to say, I need you. Please help me. Both your books, they're slow reads, and not because they're difficult, but because they're we see ourselves. There's so much to process. <laughs> oh, I found myself repeatedly. I just needed to put it down and, and work with because it just it just goes really, really deep. Um, but it was it, it's helpful and a delightful journey of, of sorts. Could you talk just a little bit about how these things are all kind of rooted out of pride? That's an important piece of the puzzle here. I mean, in some respects, there's no point in writing a separate chapter on pride because everything is about pride. <laughs> pride is this tireless, tired old pattern 
that just takes many different faces. So your pursuit of um, power and control, your pursuit of possessions, your pursuit of pleasure, your pursuit of honor are all just so many manifestations of the same desire to find happiness in whatever looks good to you and then to go get it on your own power. And this is Adam and Eve all over again. We are such a broken record when it comes to sin. There is nothing new under the sun. So sometimes people say to me, well, don't you think there's some new vices for our era? And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think we're doing the same old dumb stuff over and over and over. And that's why the desert traditionists and the medievals are so helpful because they were in it the same way we're in it. So pride is, I'm going to find some bright new shiny object and I'm going to decide how to get it. And I'm going to get it for myself on my own power and my own timing. And I'm going to make happiness for myself. More. That's the other piece too, right? Mm -hmm. No limit. That's part of the dynamic of pursuing a created good, a finite good with an infinite need for love. You're, okay, you're you got to never going to find this is Augustine. You got you got to repeat that one. Um, pursuing Well, a, I hope I can. Yeah, pursuing <laughs> a finite created good mm-hmm. with a passion that will only be satisfied by an infinite creator. Mm-hmm. You just can't fill what the longings that you're made for with these finite things. They're just never going to satisfy. So you're going to keep going back for more and going back for more and going back for more. And find yourself coming up a little bit empty every single time. It's just not designed to, to, to satisfy in the way we're no. longing to be satisfied. No. Um, Robert Roberts has a great piece on hope where he says this. He says, you almost need to relinquish your grip on all the created things in order to receive them back in the form that you can actually enjoy them. <laughs> sure. Without it destroying you in the process. You have to let go of them as idols and happiness makers. And once you've let those things go and you put God there, then you can receive them and all their created glory as gifts and to be enjoyed and cherished and delighted. In. <laughs> that's a process. That's a process. But that's where I found, I mean, it shocked me a little bit in the book, but that's what I found in it was this idea of that it's really about freedom. I think that's Augustinian language, again, from the Confessions, which is such a beautiful story of just this kind of journey, self-examination, finding yourself caught in vice, and then experiencing freedom and, and new life. Augustine, when he's young, prays, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. You know, not this weekend, <laughs> not next weekend, maybe someday later. Um, and then by the end of his journey, this journey into um the sort of throes of sexual obsession and habit and sin, he says, I I was bound by the chains of habit. Hmm. So he uses bondage language to describe where this habit has led him. And then all of a sudden he's in these chains and he can't get free. And so he's longing for the freedom that only grace can give. But that picture of, um, cords entangling us chains and bondage that's actually in proverbs using the you know we we need the lord's discipline because in our folly all we're going to do is bind ourselves um, and entangle ourselves in sin into a place where we can't get free anymore
Rebecca, what, what, what's one of these common misunderstandings that you might want to help us clear up? As soon as we start talking about virtues and vices, people think about repetitive behavior or actions, behavior that shows on the outside. And it's, I think, a really easy mistake to think of the vices in terms of just patterns of behavior. And, of course, um, many patterns of behavior can be caused by many different roots. So the story about the vices is to look for the root. Where is this coming from in my heart? What is motivating this repetitive behavior? Where is this coming from in me? Uh, what fears and loves and desires and yearnings does this tap into? That is the diagnostic process that the Desert Fathers and Mothers were looking for. The symptoms may be a sign of this, might be a sign of that. Those are outer symptoms. And you can't just peel those off. You've got to dig down deeper to see what's motivating them. They use the picture of the tree. And if you just pick off a bunch of behavioral fruit, more stuff is going to grow because you haven't gotten down to the source of the problem, which is why the capital vices are called source vices. Mm -hmm. So look for, look for disorders of the heart. Mm -hmm. That's good. And you, you mentioned the, the symptoms, what's behind them are fears, loves, desires. Right? Did you say another one? Or was that... No, I, I think that was okay. all I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But for example, gluttony is often confused with eating too much. Right. Well, there's a hundred different motivations for eating too much. Some of them, not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, so to know whether that's a symptom of gluttony or not, um, you're going to have to dig deeper to figure out where where that kind of behavior is coming from. So I don't ever want to pinpoint a behavioral symptom. It can be misleading. So you need someone who knows you pretty well to help you sometimes with self-examination. Yeah, it's, it's the uh, lazy of sorts to yeah. just go with the, oh, it must be this, but to. Well, or you in. fall into easy stereotypes. If, mm. if I don't struggle with being overweight or overeating, then I don't have a gluttony problem. Well, right. not so fast. Mm -hmm. um, you might discover that you do have a gluttony problem and you didn't know it until you tried fasting. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that took some excavating, but you realize that there's some fear down there that looks a lot like gluttonous grasping. Mm -hmm. and not trust of God. So it will take some digging to get behind the behavior mm -hmm. times to figure out what the root motivation is. One of the pieces that really caught me was how I didn't really have a good understanding of the definition of these different um, uh, vices. And I wondered, I wonder if we can do a little game. Can, <laughs> sure. <laughs> this may not work at all. And it, it's certainly oversimplistic at best. Um, could I name a kind of situation that people find themselves struggling with, and then you help connect it to uh, one of the sins, and then maybe talk about some helps with it? Does, mm -hmm. Can we try sure. that? See? Okay, so you hinted to one earlier, and this one really shocked me. Busyness. What, what category does that fall under? So the way the desert fathers and mothers would quote-unquote diagnose you as a spiritual director is they'd be looking for symptoms and busyness and restlessness diversion seeking is a symptom of sloth <laughs> so not what you'd expect you'd expect sloth to show up as boredom lethargy sitting on the couch laziness yeah. netflixing all day yeah so 
it's it's startling to name it as a symptom, but you also have to be really careful with symptom checks because symptoms can be manifestations of many things. So you have to dig down a little bit deeper to see whether it in fact comes from that deeper root or not. So I don't want to say that everyone who's busy or in a hurry has sloth. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. However, ironically, sloth is a vice of resisting the ways in which God wants to form and transform you. And that requires receiving his transforming love with submission and surrender and open hands. And sloth says, either I'm sick of your program, God, I've been on it so long and I'm not seeing any results. So I'm checking out. Mm-hmm. Or it says something like that takes too much effort. That's too hard. You're pulling me way too far out of my comfort zone. Um, and resists on those grounds. So there's many different sort of motivations for resistance, but sloth is that kind of resistance to the demands of love. And it can manifest itself in diversion seeking and running around and staying busy and staying active because then you don't actually have to stop and listen and receive God's word of where he wants to send you and lead you and say yes to it. Mm-hmm. So busyness, restlessness can be a sloth symptom. And you can see how that then tracks even deeper into pride because pride says, I want to run my own show here. And if your program gets too hard or too boring, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. So deliver the kind of Christianity I signed up for God or yeah, I'm going to be falling off the way. <laughs> so I, the interesting biblical metaphor here is Lot and his wife. They get captivated by life in Sodom. It, they're living in a perfect suburban neighborhood. They have the BMW in the garage. They have the, the kids and the and the dog and the life. It's just the life they dreamed of. And then the angels come along and say, you got to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not outside my comfort zone. And you can just imagine they're, they're staying busy. They're doing other stuff. They don't want to interrupt their calendar, their plans um, to even consider this call and in the end they get dragged away by the grace of God but don't even want to go as far as God would call them to go Lot's mm-hmm. like oh let's, let's just stay in so because that's a little bit closer to the world I'm comfortable in don't make me run all the way away from that old life so you get the old life new life dynamic and the idea that God is pulling you away from that busy comfortable life that you've chosen for yourself Mm-hmm. And I have to say, busyness is comfortable for me. That may sound mm-hmm. weird, but if you're American, it shouldn't sound weird. It should sound exactly right. My whole ego is propped up by busy achievement. Mm-hmm. I'm so busy today. See what an important person I am. Um, that whole dynamic. Um, see all the things that I've achieved today. And if that busyness keeps you from listening to God's call, you might think twice about sloth as a worry in your spiritual life, or at least something to do a, a little deeper excavating. Mm-hmm. Into. It's kind of two sides of the same coin then that whether I'm watching TV all day or mm-hmm. frantically running around, both are avoiding reality. Avoiding God. Mm-hmm. And you can do this to your spouse or your friends too. Right. So I always think it's Diagnose easy. Diagnose them, you mean? No, to avoid them, <laughs> avoid the demands of love that they put on you. Sure. Uh, you know, my spouse really needs me to change in ways that are hard for me. 
So there's lots of ways to avoid my spouse's demands. I can be a workaholic or I can be too busy to spend time and have that hard conversation and really own it. I can also be checked out watching TV and not really listening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to what they're asking for in the relationship and meeting. So that kind of avoidance of love. I like to use human relationships because that's a way in for people to understand that sloth is exactly the same dynamic, but with God. Yeah. Yeah. There's something so helpful about putting a name. Oh yeah. It just gives me a box in my head to think, whoa. And when I fall into some of these pieces to just pause and go, wait a minute, what's going on? And the same is true for the virtues. I think we've lost virtue language. Yes. So for my students, they don't have a clear picture of what to live into either. And if you have, so they'll recognize certain people in their life as worth paying attention to, admiring, following, imitating, but they can't sort of piecemeal out what aspects of their character are so attractive and beautiful. Okay. And the virtue language is really helpful for that too. Um, if you don't have a word like gentleness in your vocabulary as an important Christian virtue, you're, you're just missing pieces of the landscape mm. um, that need to be, um, that would otherwise trigger your attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's good. So as a philosopher, I love the conceptual mapping, but I also think it's deeply practical. It's a pastoral move to name mm-hmm. these things. Yeah. It is both, both the old self vices, bad habits, but also the new self, virtues. the virtues, the good habits. It's like, that's what Christ is like. Name all these things. Um, and, and then watch the spirit help you live into them. What, what virtue corresponds to sloth? Um, I don't know that there's a sort of target virtue that's peculiar to sloth, but love of God, um, especially in a contemplative, restful sense of just delighting in being in his presence. That's that's a place of deep resistance and sloth. So if you're delighting in the presence of God, probably not going to need to worry about sloth. Mm-hmm. What Aquinas will say about it is that sloth tends in its distraction seeking to go for surface pleasure because it's instant gratification. It's the easy distraction. And if you pursue easy sort of bodily sensory type goods, the superficial stuff, you, you're going to make yourself, make it harder to experience spiritual goods, which sometimes take more work and more time and more staying power. So sloth tends to make you blind to spiritual goods because you won't stay in the presence of God long enough to receive them. And your obsession with sort of trivial pleasures eventually makes you blind to the deeper, the deeper goods involved. It's so pastoral. You think, wait a minute, I'm reading this in the Summa Theologia? What? Um, this dry, dusty theological tome? Yeah, it's all in there. I love this idea that in addressing some of my challenges with sloth means that I might do practices that look kind of lazy. Yes, that's the beautiful irony of it for me. People are like, well, what's the greatest remedy for sloth? And I think, well, the Desert Fathers recommended the spiritual discipline of staying in place. Go to your cell and your cell will teach you everything. 
Yeah. And so Evagrius says, the key to sloth is not to flee because your impulse in sloth is to make the evasive escapist maneuver somehow to avoid being present where you need to be and listen and grow and commit. Mm -hmm. And so the discipline is to stay and to stay put, which seems so ironic when you think about our typical view of sloth as laziness, which is, that is the way we use the term in English and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're, you're sort of missing this deeper sense of Acadia from the tradition. Okay. I have one more. Can we do another one? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Worry. Ooh. So worry is a kind of fear. It could be a number of things, but it depends what you're afraid of. I, there's a strand in the tradition that puts fear at the root of the tree, right down there with pride. Mm. So you think about pride as the need to be in control of your own life mm-hmm. and fear as sort of the flip side of that. I'm afraid I won't be. So fear prompts all kinds of over-grasping overcompensating for control mm-hmm. one place it shows up probably most obviously is in the area of greed or avarice because one thing you can control is stuff right and you can go get more stuff and it makes you feel powerful which is why people do retail therapy it's also escapist but it's also if you're feeling out of control in your life and you go buy something that you can then own and master and be in charge of, it's a little bit of a power trip, right? So mm. it helps feed the fear problem in the sense of it makes me feel less afraid because I have control here mm-hmm. and I've reasserted my sense of mastery over my life. So I think fear and worry can feed avarice. But as I've mentioned in the Vainglory book, if the fear is that people won't love me, then we've got a vainglory dynamic we can track with fear. So I can see it playing into that place as well. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid you won't like me. So I'm going to put on this beautiful mask and you're going to love the mask. And all my desire to be deeply loved and known will still go on that because what I really long for is for you to love me and to know me. And yet I won't let you see me because there's all these ugly parts of me I'm pretty sure you'll reject. So Mm -hmm. fear can play deep into vainglory. If you do the Enneagram, it will give you a set of nine rather than the set of seven or eight, depending on how you count the vices. So just add fear on the list. Fear and deception show up there in a way that they don't show up as clearly in the list of vices. So worry then could be lots of different things. It could go under... Uh, greed and trying to regain some sort of control uh, from the fear, or it could fall under vainglory, probably even other things too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. The desert fathers will talk about the monks trying to have a stash of backup possessions in their cell, just in case they get sick or in their old age, they have need. And that's the worry piece. That's the fear coming through the idea that you You just want a little backup plan for yourself because you don't really trust God. And that I don't really trust God to give me what I need and to give me what's good. That's Adam and Eve all over again, right? So you can hear that fear as a manifestation. It can show up as as hoarding or or avarice, but it could also 
just simply be Adam and Eve seeking pride all over that. I don't really trust that God has my good in mind. So I'm going to follow my own path here. Have at least the backup plan. Could we say that fear has pieces in all of them then? Yes. So I think there can be fearful manifestations of all of the vices. I mean, I could give you the same story about fasting and gluttony. Gluttony is, again, a kind of, I want to feed myself pleasure because I don't trust myself to receive it as a gift. I don't trust God for that. Um, And so fasting makes you vulnerable again, right? So there's the fear. This is an, an embarrassing story, but when I first started practicing fasting as a rookie Protestant, um, I I felt that in the diet, like, wow, I have six hours before I can eat again. And I would try to put a little extra away at lunchtime thinking I'm hoarding against this, this stretch of time yeah. when I'm going to be needy and vulnerable. And I don't like to be needy and vulnerable. And I'm afraid of that. I'm going to feel hungry and not be able to handle it. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a little away here. And that dynamic I think is, is deeply prideful, but it, yeah, I could show up all over the place. Prideful in the, it's about I don't me. trust God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't trust God. I'm going to take care of my happiness because he's not going to take care of it for me. Yep. Yeah. yeah. This stuff goes so deep. It is scary deep sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 it's a good journey. And I, I love that you just, you see yourselves all all in it. I see all of us in it. And that part of, I think the fun of this route in is to realize that it doesn't matter sort of which branch of the tree you start on. It's all the same game and we're all playing it and we're all in deep. So as a route to contrition, it's very effective (laughs) because it will catch you wherever you are and bring you where you need to be. Mm-hmm. If you if you're willing to dig deep enough, like, oh my goodness, there's this there it is again. There it is again. Oh, same pattern in you. Oh yeah, it's all there. Um we're all in this. Um, so in that respect, it's not a kind of moralistic, well there are those terrible sinners out there who do those terrible things. Right. It's like, oh, all this absolutely mundane stuff I've never thought about. It's all the same pattern. And this is, this is, again, kind of the beauty of Augustine's Confessions. He, he has this great story about steel hairs. And it's just, it's a completely trivial adolescent prank. He picks the most harmless thing he's ever done and then goes off for a, a whole book of the Confessions on how this is a manifestation of pride. And you, my students' reaction is always, he needs to get over himself. You know, we all like TP <laughs> principal in high school and you know the world didn't end that's not like a sin it's not terrible but augustine's point is it doesn't matter how mundane it all that rush of i get to say what my life is about i get to say what is good for me and i get to pursue it on my own power that's what feels great about sin Mm -hmm. and that's pride. and that's the hard issue behind it all and I think once you get down that far, you realize you are out of your league, which is great. You know, if you're still in sort of symptom check land, you think, well, I can take care of that symptom. I'll just, you know, 
um, try to patch it over with this, this band-aid practice or not do that behavior or try to self-censor myself when I'm in the car with my kids and tempted to yell at the traffic around me or whatever. Um, but in the end, if you, if you really figure out where it's coming from, you realize at the end of the day, your prayer is Lord have mercy because mm -hmm. I got nothing here. Yeah. I can, this is, this is way too deep in me. This is in fact me through and through. And the process for. <laughs> so there's a, I think there's a way into the practice of contrition from self-examination. But the contrition is, I can't deliver myself from this. Please deliver me. So it is a prayer for deliverance. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's God inviting you into freedom. Yeah, this is not self-help to deal with sin. Oh, no. Oh, no. Please, that illusion has to die. And that is, that is the worry when you tackle this topic. If you frame the old self in terms of vice, the easy move is to say, and now you have to go out and practice virtue. So let's invent a Christian self-help virtue training program and get everybody on it. Go team. And there's no grace in that. Well, my picture is there's the vices on the one side. That's your old self. And that's what needs to die. And then there's Christ-like virtue he's the perfect human being that's what you're aspiring to that's the goal what's the bridge between those two what bridge is the gap and the answer is not practicing virtue harder <laughs> the answer is spiritual discipline which is in effect a way of practicing receptivity to the holy spirit who's going to do the transforming work well, the best you can do is be intentional about your open-handedness because the spirit will transform you in whatever way you need transforming. It will probably not be what be what you expect. It will be something unexpected and sometimes something painful and often in areas you really weren't ready to surrender. Mm -hmm. um, and we very fun stories about that, which we could talk about maybe another time. But that's, for me, it was like this virtue, this Aristotelian virtue practice program is, is, and at the end of the day, deeply humanistic. Sure. That's not what we need. It's a, we there's need. a tension of, not tension, there's a, a posture of, I need help, and I'm, and I need your grace yep. to kind of help in this, mm -hmm. yet I'm not just going to sit, right? I'm going right. to participate in that and engage in practices that um, will help put me in a position for transformation to occur. And for, for my Protestant audiences, and frankly, in my own spiritual journey, that was an important discovery. Um, it's very easy to be so worried about works righteousness that you just sit on the couch and hope the Holy Spirit does some magic while you're sleeping or whatever. Um, Cause you don't want to be doing anything that looks like a self-help program. And yet you're still supposed to read your Bible and pray. I mean, those are things you're doing. So to try to think of the spiritual disciplines on that model, there's places you can intentionally put yourself where you're ready to receive. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what you need to be doing. Yes. Love it. Rebecca, so helpful. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. 
Of course, if you want to access the study guides Rebecca crafted for us, or to hear more interviews and engage with her in these coming months, you're welcome to join us in the Renovare Book Club. You can find more information on renovare.org slash book club. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.